read just uh, one verse, although I think it might be helpful to read uh, the, the prior two verses, which we considered last time, verses 12 and 13 of Romans chapter 8, and then coming to verse 14 as uh, the as the lone uh, verse of the sermon, which we will consider in the sermon, I mean. Hear God's word. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And let us pray together. Our father in heaven, we are grateful indeed for your word as always. And we ask you that now through the preaching, you might shed uh, new light on it. Bring it home to the soul with new power and new life and enable us to know of what the Apostle Paul here speaks, namely that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Amen. Well, we come now uh, to a new stage in the argument. Uh, we, we've been considering uh, the, the sustained emphasis on uh, the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul begins by saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's his leading assertion. But if you remember in chapter 8, what he's really doing is making it clear. He's not just stating the doctrine of justification, but he's making it clear uh, who are those about whom this is true. He's not just saying there's no condemnation. He's saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so the whole of the chapter becomes a detailed description of what it is to be in Christ. And in particular, how it is that we can be sure that we are in Christ. And then if we are in Christ, that we ought to be sure. And so uh, I've, I've titled the theme of this chapter, Our Certainty in the Gospel, or something like that. Our Certainty of Salvation. If you're in Christ, you ought to know it. You ought to know that you're justified. You ought to know. He goes on to say that you're a son of God and that you're full of the Holy Spirit. These are all things that you ought to know. And so as we come to a new a new section in the argument, I think the way I the way I understood it, verses five through 13 were their own unit. We closed that off uh, last time. Paul ended with an exhortation uh, as we come to a new section, namely dealing with sonship. And the, the, the certainty that sonship entails. The overall teaching has not changed. And that is the teaching of assurance. And because that is so. And let me also say that verses 14 through 17 are perhaps the most useful and the most helpful And the most beloved verses in all of the Bible on the subject of assurance. I wonder if any of you would dispute that. And because I hope to look at them in a very detailed way. I want to ask the question again, why all this talk about assurance? I'm taking my time with it. We've been really looking at it ever since chapter five. Now we're looking at it in an even more detailed way in chapter eight. Why all this talk of assurance? Well, I will tell you. The first reason is that there is nothing that is more damaging to our ability to live the Christian life than a lack of assurance. It is because of this 
a lack of assurance that people are hindered from professing faith. That is to say, they are hindered from ever starting venturing out to walk as Christian people. I don't know if I can profess faith because I don't know if I'm a Christian. You see, it hinders them. It stops them short. Or having professed faith, lacking assurance, they are brought to question whether they ever should have. Should I have started out? Should I have professed faith? You see, I'm I'm saying doubts are hindering them. Either at the beginning or very early on. Later down the road, they come to church full of doubts and worries. They wonder throughout the week whether there's any use in praying to God or trying to live the Christian life. Why bother? I don't even know if I'm a Christian. They come to the table full of doubts, wondering if they should take or partake. And so they're hindered in every way. And I wonder, in any way have I described you thus far, whether at the beginning or early in the journey or down the road or even today, have I described you as someone who is hindered and and held back by doubts and worries and concerns? Am I even a Christian? I, I think this sort of thing is common. But in light of that hindrance and that problem, I I would say the vast majority of pastoral problems have to do with this issue. Am I even a Christian? In light of that, do you not see the value of this, of being sure? One of the things I know, I know that, you know, I, I love to read the Puritans and the Puritan minded man. Well, one of the things that I, I am finding more and more as I read these men that this, this is almost an invariable theme in their writings. These are men who love to speak of assurance. They love to speak of assurance as really the, 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 the soul of Christianity. This is what a Christian is. This is how he lives. This is how he thrives. Something which is almost constantly stressed. Recently I've been reading Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections. And I've especially been struck. I don't know how many of you have read it. I would, I would certainly commend it. It's, it's downstairs uh, on, on the bookshelf to be purchased. If you have any interest in doing so. One of the things that has really struck me in that book. That, I, that almost surprised me. Though I, I, I'm surprised that I was surprised. Is how much he stresses assurance. Indeed the whole of the book really. Is about who may be sure. Who is the true Christian. This is the goal of believing, he says. And one which he says, the New Te- and I'm, I'm fully in agreement here, one which the New Testament sets forth as what ought to be the ordinary experience of believers. Not something extraordinary, not something only within the grasp of a few, but what ought to be the ordinary experience. He says uh, that it was a common thing for saints in Scripture to enjoy assurance. I wonder if that's true today. I don't think it is. Well, I would I would put it in the other way. I would also say in defense of a sustained study of this topic based upon scripture, that is of assurance, that the best saints are those who are sure. And that is always the case. Those who do the most for God and are powerful witnesses for Christ are those who enjoy assurance in a strong measure. Uh, If you think about uh, the apostles in Acts as the spirit was poured out upon them. They were men who were made sure, men who were previously full of doubts, full of worries, full of fear. But suddenly they became mighty in the hands of God. 
Now, that was a result of the Holy Spirit being poured out on them. And just the way Paul is describing here, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. What was the result? They were made sure. And it was out of that certainty that they became witnesses for Jesus Christ. And even, as I say, we're prepared to suffer for them. Or the Apostle Paul, who comes later in Acts, the man who wrote this epistle, the man who gave not only here, but in so many places, a mighty testimony of his own assurance. How familiar he was with this theme. That he was able to write a chapter like this. And look at all that he did for God and Christ. Do you, do you understand that he did so as a man who was sure? And he could never have done so much otherwise. Or take the case of the reformers. What was it that made them such mighty instruments of revival? Our heroes, or at least I can say for my part, my heroes, Luther, Calvin, uh, and, and, and such men as these. Well, I would suggest to you it was the doctrine of assurance, which is why they talked about it so much. In fact, uh, later generations came along and said, you know, I think you talked about it a little too much. And maybe they did. But they loved to talk about assurance. I would say it was perhaps their favorite subject. Here was and remains. Let me stress that. Let me underline that. Remains the crux of their protest with Rome, that a believer may be sure in this life of salvation how the doctrine of justification by faith uh, inevitably and invariably in the life of the believer leads to an assurance of salvation. Why? Because it's not a matter of my works. It's a matter of what God has done for me. It's a matter of his grace. Thus it leads to assurance. And thus they asserted this over and over again, even to the point, as I say, that some came along later and said, you know, I think you went a little too far with this. But it was against this assertion that a believer may be sure in this life and that a believer ought to be sure in light of the doctrine of justification that Trent, the Council of Trent and the counter reformation in Rome uttered that awful anathema that anyone who uh, asserts assurance is possible in this life is uh, let let him be accursed. Now, that is a teaching which stands in Rome. Well, I'm telling you that this is of the very essence of what it is to be a Protestant. It is to assert and to believe the doctrine of assurance as the inevitable outflow and consequence of the doctrine of justification by faith. But I'm saying it is because they understood that and it is because they asserted this that made them great. It was uh, like Abraham before them, their certainty in God. They didn't waver in unbelief. They had an unwavering and unshakable confidence, not only in their own salvation, but as a result of that, of what God might do through them. And so are we surprised to find in their lives, like Paul before them, that God was working mightily? What was the foundation of this? It was their certainty. It was their confidence in God. Is there anything more important than this? You see, they didn't build the church with a weak and a feeble faith. You can never do that. You can never make great strides in the Christian life and in the church unless you're like Abraham, unless you're like Luther, unless you're like Paul. Unless you have a faith in God which is mighty and unshakable and absolutely certain and sure. That's the value of having assurance. It's not just the enjoyment of the thing itself. Of course, we enjoy being sure. In fact, there's nothing better. It's the highest 
uh, peak you can reach as a Christian in terms of your own enjoyment of God. But that's not the ultimate value. That's not what I'm saying is the ultimate value. I'm saying the ultimate value is what it leads to in the life of those who enjoy it. Do you want to be used of God? Do you want to be mighty in his hands? Do you want to do great things for God? I don't know about you, but that's the kind of thing I pray for. Well, understand the rock upon which this is built. The Christian usefulness. You cannot do great things for God with a, with a weak and a feeble faith. I could multiply examples almost innumerable. In fact, the more I study this issue, the more surprising it is to me. Were there any great saints mightily used in the hands of God who did not enjoy an assurance? Almost invariably, you'll find the answer is no. You will find in the history of the great saints. In fact, I challenge you to find what I'd be interested to know. But this is what you typically find. You will find in their lives that the men who were most used of God, the Luthers, the Whitfields, and on and on you go, that there was a period in their life where they struggled mightily for assurance. They didn't have it. And uh, we might even add John Wesley. I know he was an Arminian, but add him to the list. They struggled mightily. They didn't have it. They weren't used of God, and they were aware of this. But they struggled for it, and they found it. And having found it, They became mighty. They became great. There was a kind of release in their souls and their usefulness abounded. I always like to quote Horatius Bonar whenever I try to make this point. In his book, The Everlasting Righteousness, this is what he says. He says, men with their feet firmly set on Luther's rock, filled with the spirit and pervaded with the peace of God, do great things in the church. Others do the little Not just justification, Bonar contends, but sure justification. The knowledge of which he says was life from the dead to multitudes. The assurance of justification. Now that's, that's the way I propose to look at these verses. And so we'll go on with this theme right up to the end of chapter 8. And again, let me stress, and I'm not alone in doing so, that these verses in particular, verses 14 through 17, are among the most crucial to our understanding of the subject before us. And I can assure you that if you have the kind of experience that Paul is describing here, uh, then you will know what Whitfield knew, and you will know what Paul knew, and you will know what Luther knew. And you will begin to build upon Luther's rock. But let me offer another reason. Some of you imagine that you've gotten assurance already, and I wouldn't dispute it. I know that many of you have. But I will tell you something that perhaps you did not know. And I say that because I don't think that I knew it until now. And that is that it is possible to have assurance and yet lack assurance. I'm not speaking in riddles when I say this. But one of the most wonderful and surprising discoveries Uh, which I made in my study of these verses, is that there are lower and there are higher forms of assurance. In other words, you can't just speak of assurance in a flat way. You can't just say, well, this is assurance and this only. No, there are different kinds of assurance. There's lower, there's higher, and then there's higher still. And it would seem in these verses, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, that Paul is, as it were, climbing the ladder. 
He's beginning at the bottom, uh, verse 14, but then verse 15, he climbs a little higher. And then verse 16, a bit higher still. And then, uh, uh, and then verse 17, even higher. You go on from assurance to assurance. And so if you tell me, well, I have assurance, I'll say, ah, oh, that's wonderful. But reach higher still. Uh, do you remember uh, how the, he- the, the writer to the Hebrews describes the goal uh, of believing He says, we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. As though we're going and going and going, reaching higher and higher. We're not fully there. The full assurance of hope to the end. And so keep climbing. Even if you say you have it, keep climbing. And and go along with me and climb this ladder as we go through these, uh, I think will be four sermons. We'll see. Uh, at the rate I'm going, I don't think I'm going to finish this sermon. Uh, I, 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 hope, I hope that I will. Uh, but I don't want to rush it either. In order to appreciate, as we come now to these verses, verse 14 in particular, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And I like to add the word indeed. I, I wonder if that's in another translation. I wonder where I got that. For these indeed are the sons of God. Or maybe I'm just emphasizing that in my own way. In order to appreciate how we got here, always notice the word for or therefore. Paul is linking his argument with the prior teaching. He's showing in essence how it is that this teaching is the inevitable outflow or consequence of the prior teaching. You remember I was saying that about the reformers. They didn't just stop with justification, but they said, you know, certain things are inevitable as a result. One of them is sanctification, but another one is assurance. You've got to keep going. You don't really understand justification unless you see these things. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He's linking this new teaching on sonship with the prior teaching. And so we should ask the question, first of all, what made him say what he said in verse 14? And the answer is what he just said in verses 9 through 13. First of all, verses 9 through 11. He's saying, in essence, uh, well, I'll I'll begin to read it. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If the spirit, indeed, the spirit of God dwells in you and, and Christ is in you and so on. He's describing the Christian as someone who is indwelt by the spirit. He's not in the realm of the flesh. He's in the realm of the spirit. He's born again. He's on a new path. He's living in a new way. Why is that? Well, not only is he in the realm of the spirit, but the spirit is dwelling in him. That's our starting point. That's where we stand if we are Christian people. And it is the power which is inherent in our position. The spirit has taken up his residence in us. And if that is true, if that's what it means to be a Christian, certain other things will be true. Well, he tells us in verses 12 and 13 something that is true. And that is, if we are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in us, then we're not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We're debtors, rather, he implies, to the Spirit. Our obligations lie in the realm and to the Spirit. And that is evidenced, Paul says in verse 13, by our ongoing hostility to the flesh. You remember, I I hope, something that John Calvin said once. He says, uh, sin lives in the Christian, but the Christian doesn't live in sin. I think that's a very good way of putting it. It's very helpful. 
The Christian isn't living in sin. Shall we live in sin that grace may abound? May it never be, Paul says, Romans chapter 6. No, we don't live in sin. And yet we find that sin still lives in us. And so what is our attitude? What is our position to sin to be? Well, it is one of hostility. It is one of opposition. If by the, the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. You see, he's describing the Christian there. It's interesting to note, by the way, uh, I preached it in, 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 in the tone or of an exhortation, but, but actually it's, it's just a description there, verse 13. He doesn't say, I want you to mortify the deeds of the flesh. He's still uh, describing what a Christian is. A Christian is someone not who lives in sin, but is who opposed to sin. Even the sin that he still finds in himself, just as Calvin says. He's not living in sin, but sin is living in him, and so he's opposed to it. That's what a Christian is. He's someone who is opposed to sin even as he's living in the spirit and the spirit is living in him. And that is uh, that whole line of thought is confirmed by what he says next. He's still describing the man in whom the spirit dwells. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the spirit. Again, note the word for it's linking it with the prior thought. For as many as are uh, led by the spirit. These are the sons of God. In other words, here are the true Christians. The Christian isn't just someone who is opposed to sin or indwelt by the Spirit. But the Christian is someone, Paul says, who is led by the Spirit. And as a result, whom we might call the Son of God. And because of this, because that's what a Christian is, and because we might quite clearly define a Christian like this, here are those who might be sure that they are Christians. In other words, they needn't be in any doubt about it. They don't need to be constantly hindered by a weak and a feeble faith full of doubts. But they might enjoy with Paul a mighty assurance. Or to put the matter negatively, looking at verse 14. Only those who are being led by the Spirit, only they are the sons of God and no one else. In other words, we're repudiating here the doctrine of universalism, the universal fatherhood of God, the universal brotherhood of men. No, that isn't the teaching of Scripture. No man is a Christian who is not dwelt by the Spirit, who is not led by the Spirit. He's not a son of God. He's a son of the devil, Jesus says. Let us also be clear about that. But those who are led by the Spirit, because they are indwelt by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. That's the teaching. And only they. Well, they're led by the Spirit. In what way? In just the way he's outlined in the prior verses they're walking by the Spirit. They're living by the Spirit. These are, these are the, the phrases that he uses. They're setting them, their minds on the things of the Spirit, which the carnal mind cannot do. And so they're also, verse 13, the, the immediate preceding thought, they are mortifying the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. In all this, it is evident that they are being led by, the, by, uh, they are being led by him and he is leading them. That's the thought. That's how we got to verse 14. And, and in this way, they may know with certainty that they are the sons of God. And so here's something that the Christian needs to know about himself. And I agree with Luther and I agree with Calvin and I agree with Edwards that the Christian really ought to be sure. He ought to enjoy an assurance. He should not be hindered by constant doubts. This is what you need to know about yourself if you're a Christian. Not just that you're forgiven, but that you are accepted. 
You are received into the number of the children of God. When God looks upon you, he regards you not as an enemy, not as a child of the devil, though he once did. He regards you now as accepted in the beloved, as his own son, as his own child. That's the teaching here. No, you weren't born like this. No man is born a Christian. I don't care if you were born into the church, born to Christian parents. No man is born a Christian. We are not by nature the children of God. We are rather by nature the children of wrath, children of the devil. But Paul says if you're a Christian, you've been born again. You've been adopted. You've been accepted of the Father. That's what a Christian is. The sons of God. These indeed are the sons of God, Paul says. All who call on the name of Christ. All who are indwelt by the Spirit. All who are led by the Spirit. And this is what the Christian's testimony about himself must be. You see, he doesn't just look at the, the, the general description of a Christian and say, I, I know that a Christian is a son of God, but he's able to testify about himself. I know that God is my father. I know that I've been made a son. I know that by grace I've been saved and brought and numbered among the children of God. That's the Christian's testimony about himself. Something beyond justification. Something beyond forgiveness. Something beyond imputation, the knowledge that we are sons, the assurance of sonship. That's the theme of verses 14 through 17, the assurance of sonship. But here, with the time that remains, and I think I might just finish the sermon, I just want to look at one word, and that is the word led. I don't know if you noticed, but the title of the sermon is Led by the Spirit. Well, that's a very interesting word, isn't it? And it's very important. It, it would be easy uh, to, to, to almost overlook it because we're so eager to talk about our sonship. And that becomes the great theme here. But we can't get to sonship before we get through the word led. What does he mean here? One of the things that I find that is so fascinating here and helpful is that we find the same word led, led by the Spirit, in Galatians chapter 5, in the complex of the same teaching. There in chapters 4 and 5, Paul is stressing our sonship by the Spirit. He's stressing the fact that we're walking by the Spirit. We're living by the Spirit. And in these ways, we're able to oppose the flesh. But, but in chapter 5, verse 18, a lesser known verse, he says this. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You see, you see, he says, walk by the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 16, uh, he says in verse 25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit, live, walk, but also led. And we find that same word in the, co- in the complex of the same teaching. Walk, live, led. This word led is a very helpful one. It adds much to our understanding of what it means to live and to walk by the Spirit, to be full of His life and His power. It describes what is involved in our relationship to the Holy Spirit as a person, namely that He is leading us, very obviously. He is the one who governs us and leads us. That's the teaching, not ourselves, not our flesh, not sin, not the world, not the devil. The person who is leading the Christian is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading us. And if he is leading us, we may be sure, Paul says, that we are the sons of God. We may enjoy an assurance of sonship, but not unless we are first sure that we're being led by him. 
So that's really where we begin, and that's as far as we'll get this time. Let me divide the matter like this. Where is he leading us? Don't you think that's the most obvious and natural way to look at it? If he's leading us, where is he leading us? Well, he's quite clearly, in light of the teaching in uh, Galatians chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, he is leading us away from sin. He is leading us away from all that is involved in sin. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 That's the more famous verse, not verse 18, but verse 17 to the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another and so on and so forth. You see, the the, the flesh is opposing the spirit, but let's not put the emphasis there. Let's put the emphasis here. The spirit is opposing the flesh. All that is fleshly in you. As he's leading you, he's leading you away from that. He's leading you away from sin. He's leading you away from misery. All that sin aims at. The spirit opposes positively. That's negatively positively. He leads us unto righteousness. So away from sin unto righteousness. That's always how we should view his work in leading us. In fact, so strongly is that the emphasis here that some have wrongly suggested that Romans chapter eight is really a chapter on sanctification. It isn't. But sanctification is woven into the doctrine of assurance. I'll say more on that later. No, this isn't a chapter about sanctification, but in leading us, the spirit is leading us unto righteousness. He is leading us to live a life that is pleasing to God. He's not only outlining it for us, but he's enabling us to do it. So he's not only leading us away, he's leading us unto. It's not so much a question of guidance. So often when people speak of being led by the spirit, that's where they end up. They, they want to talk about well, the guidance of the Spirit. The Spirit led me to do this, to buy this car or marry this person. That isn't what we're talking about. That's not what Paul is talking about. I don't think it's right to look for those things in this life. I don't find any evidence of that in Scripture. Here's what I do find. I find the Spirit leading the believer to live a life which is conformed to Jesus Christ. That's what I find. Away from a fleshly kind of living. It's very similar to what Jesus says, isn't it? Jesus says to his disciples, follow me. Isn't he saying the same thing? He's saying, I want to lead you. And where am I leading you? Well, the same teaching is found in Jesus. What happens when a man begins to follow Jesus? He is led away from a life of sin and misery and despair. And even a spirit of bondage will soon see. And he is led unto a life of sonship, a life of joy, a life of righteousness. He's leading us, I would even say, most gloriously into the presence of the Father. Even now, that's what he's doing. That's how we should view this whole subject of of, of being led by the Son, being led by the Spirit. Don't don't confuse it with the, the question of guidance. Think of it like this. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is like the ministry of Jesus in leading us. Leading us in the way of salvation. He's teaching us to walk and to live in a manner contrary to the flesh. In the way of holiness and meekness and Christ-likeness. Next question. How does he do so? How does he lead us? He does, uh, he does so like this. First, by changing us, by giving us a new nature. The Holy Spirit is the author of the new life in the believer. That's something we've seen already. We're not walking in the oldness of the letter, but the newness of the Spirit. Chapter 7, verse 6. Chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He is the author of new life. And what we need to see is that by giving us a new nature and by enabling us to walk in newness of life, he's leading us. 
He's leading us in a new direction entirely. Beyond that, not only does he change our nature, but he impresses his nature upon us. Now, that was something I was also surprised and happy to read in, in Edwards this week. I'll, I, I almost brought the quote and read it, but as you can tell, I have enough to say as it is. Let me just describe the point myself. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is what the believer is like who is full of the Spirit, obviously. But why is he like that? Why is the believer who is full of the Spirit made like that? Because the fruit of the Spirit is the Spirit's own life. It's the Spirit's own nature. And the way that the Spirit makes you uh, holy and Christ-like is by making him like himself. Making you, I mean, like himself. He is impressing, he is imprinting his own nature upon your soul. As he dwells there, he is conforming. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. And a man can't be living and walking in the Spirit without the Spirit's life and the Spirit's nature emanating from him more and more. He's making us like himself. He's impressing his own nature upon our souls. This is what the Holy Spirit himself is like. And by his dwelling in us, so he makes us like himself. A third way he does so is always by the Scriptures. Never apart from them. Remember that the Spirit is the author of both. He's the author of the Word, so he is the author of our own life. He is the Spirit of truth, and his ministry is one of leading us in and unto the truth. He does so like this. He enlightens our minds. He gives us a new understanding. He enables us to comprehend the things of God, even to have the mind of Christ. The the Holy Spirit is doing all of these things in us, and so he is leading us in this new way. And yet... As a third point, I would also stress that it is possible to grieve the spirit, to quench the spirit, and even to resist the spirit. All of those are scriptural phrases. And so we must always remember that the spirit of God is a person. Let us never forget that. What are we talking about when we say that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, we're saying that the person, the third person of the Holy Spirit has actually taken up his residence in you and me. And because of this, our relationship to him... Because he's a person, our relationship to him is delicate, it's dynamic, it's capable of change and variation. Because the Holy Spirit is a person, we don't always know what he will do. And so we're open to the possibilities. We're not in control. And this tells us that his leading is not something that is forced. It's more like a prompting, it's a leading, it's a convicting work. He is there to enable and to prompt and to urge and to lead on. But he doesn't force so that there is still in this dynamic relationship, he leading, we following. There is still the possibility of resisting him and of grieving him and of quenching him. This relationship of following his lead is easily disrupted. It's easily upset. It's possible to ignore the Holy Spirit as a person. It's possible to upset him. And even to drive him away in some measure by our sin, by our negligence, by our giving the flesh too much leeway. You see, Paul seems to imagine that a man might live by the spirit and yet not walk by the spirit. That's what he says in Galatians 5.25. Yes, of course, you're alive in the spirit if you're a believer. But do you realize that it's possible at times that you're not walking like a believer, that you're not walking by the Spirit? Well, he says to you, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, as though to say, let us follow his lead. Where he is leading us, let us be sure to go. Stop ignoring the Holy Spirit who is in you. And the end result 
is this. A man who does so, who not only lives but who walks by the Spirit, becomes aware that he's being led. He's conscious of the leading and the prompting and the convicting and the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit in him. He's conscious of the power and the leading of the Spirit in opposing sin and in pursuing righteousness. This is where the Spirit is leading him. This is what the Spirit is producing in his own soul. And what comes as a result of this, Paul says, the consciousness that we are being led is the consciousness that we are the sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. In other words, it becomes apparent, as John says, who are the true sons of God and those who are not. Those who are the, the, the sons of the devil are those who make a practice of sin, but not the sons of God. No, those are they who make a practice of righteousness. They have a new principle of life and of righteousness in them. Oh, yes, Paul says it's evident. It's manifest. It's manifest to the world and to the church. But Paul is saying here, it's manifest to the man himself. It's obvious. It's evident. I can see the thing plainly. It's those who are mortifying the deeds of the flesh by the spirit who can be sure that they're being led by the spirit and thus that they are the sons of God. They needn't be in any doubt about it at all. It's just as clear as this, that any man who isn't being led by the spirit isn't a Christian. And what is a Christian? A Christian is a child of God, something we will consider further in coming sermons. But for now, let us see this much clearly and let us see the truth about ourselves. That if we are being led by the Spirit, we are the sons of God. But let me say one last thing. An observation from Jonathan Edwards. And this is an observation that many make. And that is that this kind of assurance that we are the sons of God, and this ought to be obvious by everything that I've said, is not possible but by way of obedience. It's not only possi not possible, but neither would it be beneficial, Edwards says, if it were otherwise. For if it were possible... For a man to live in sin and come to this mighty assurance, this invincible assurance that he's a son of God, well, then God would just be daring a man to sin. He would be daring a man, emboldening him uh, to live a life of sin. No, it is agreeable to the nature of God, to the grace of the gospel, and to the nature of assurance that assurance, this kind of assurance only comes as we are walking and being led by the Spirit by way of obedience. And as the child who lives and looks to the father as the father is one to obey, is one to please, what he becomes conscious of about himself as a result is that he is indeed the son of God. And so let us see those who are walking in obedience, who, who are not only living but walking by the spirit and so being led by them. Yes, these are the sons of God. They may be sure. Here is, let me say. The lowest form of assurance, it's only the first rung in the ladder, but it's where you must start. If you, if you would go higher, you cannot do so, but by starting here on the first rung of the ladder. And so let us all start here. Let us be sure, first of all, that we are being led by the Spirit. And having done so, let us together proceed to ascend the ladder of assurance together. Amen. And let us come now to the table.
Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And when he had, then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks again, uh, thanks and, and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing. Well, what I want to stress uh, very briefly is uh, two points from our book. It it, it outlines five points in in describing the nature of the sacrament. It says that it's not a, a mere memorial. It's a means of grace by which God feeds us with the crucified, resurrected, exalted Christ. He does so by his Holy Spirit through faith. Thus, he strengthens us. Okay, that's the first thing. He strengthens us. Number two, although it's number three in the list here, the sacrament further signifies and seals the forgiveness of our sin and our nourishment and growth in Christ. So God is strengthening us in our faith, number one, and he's also sealing to our faith the very promises of salvation. In other words, he's putting a stamp upon the letter. The letter already was written, but here he's saying it has the stamp of divine of uh, of divine authorship and the and the letter says this all who are in Christ are forgiven fully and freely and they may come to Jesus Christ and be fed and be nourished in the inner man uh, just as often as they would now that's the promise of the father that's the promise of the son the gift of forgiveness and he offers this means of grace as a constant seal and testimony to that promise Uh, It is, let me stress, a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual uh, nourishment. Uh, We we change the bread. Look at it. Could you imagine a smaller piece of bread? But don't you see? uh, That doesn't matter. Because we aren't here to fill our bellies. Uh, It isn't the outward that we place the emphasis on. It's upon the inward. It's upon our... Well, it is, it is upon Christ that we are feeding, but we are speaking after a spiritual fashion. We are seeking to have the inner man strengthened and nourished. And we would not expect to find such things apart from Christ and his word to the church. And to his word, he adds this seal. He, he's speaking to believers. I'm speaking to believers. And as he says, so I say to you, come and eat and drink. And may your faith be nourished in this way. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the gift of communion, the Lord's Supper. We we ask you that by these means we might be made more sure of the very things we've believed, that you would seal them unto our souls even as you signify them. Bring to our hearts and to our minds thoughts and remembrance of Jesus Christ, crucified and crucified and, and, um, and, and shedding his blood there. And bring the reality and the gift of forgiveness more closely home to the soul. By this very means, we humbly ask in Jesus' name, amen.